Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Each week we explore questions of faith, community, and identity. This is Jessica Chen Feng, and I'm your host for this season as we dive into issues of mental and relationship health. Thank you for joining us. Well, today I have with me a very dear colleague and friend in the family therapy world. This is Dr. Lana Kim. Welcome, Lana. Hi, thanks, Jessica. It's such an honor to uh, get to be with you in this podcast space. Oh, it's, it's such an honor for me too. So Lana, she's an associate professor of marriage, couple, and family therapy at Lewis and Clark College. And many of us probably know that's in nice and refreshing Portland, Oregon. Um, and today we have a really great topic to cover together. We're going to look at how race, gender, and context really has everything to do with our well-being. And maybe just to share with the listeners a little bit, Lana and I both went to Loma Linda University for our PhDs, and that's where we met, and we've had the chance to do, um, do some research and a lot of writing together since we both left. And so um, it's great to connect with Lana today. So Lana, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself and um, anything that you'd like to share as it relates to our topic today. Oh, okay. Um, so I was actually born in um, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, and I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, which is obviously a very diverse place for anyone who's ever been there. Um, and then I finished my university at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, um, and stayed there to work a few years. Um, and then when I was thinking about graduate school um, and sort of just what I want to do with my life, I looked at graduate school, part of me, um, and came across family therapy programs. And at the time, I knew very little about the field of family therapy. Um, one, because it was never mentioned um, during my entire undergrad process. I think family therapy as a discipline looks very different in Canada. My path took me to the United States um, and I landed in California to pursue graduate school. Um, and so I've been now in the States for, mm, I would say, close to 15 years, going on to about 14, 15 years. Um, so a lot of like how I move through the world and a lot of how I experience myself, I think is sort of informed by these different sort of cultural contexts. Mm. I think that that was sort of important to just kind of share about yeah. who I am. Yeah, for sure. And I think many of us, I guess we're not just Asian American, we're Asian North American. Um, we didn't get explicitly socialized around racial gender or other identities how did you start to gain awareness about this and then develop interest in these areas that's a really um interesting question for me to answer i mean think about really an answer um you know i i think a lot of our lived experience because phenotypically we don't quote unquote look Western, you're really aware from a very, very early age that you represent something different or that you mean something different to the society in which you're living. So I guess what I mean by that is I don't think I was aware of 
and it sounds funny to say this, but I truly don't think that I was cognizant of being Asian Canadian. I just thought of myself as Canadian until about the age of eight. And part of how that happened wasn't through a conversation with my family, even though there are many experiences I had with people in my family where race in a public sense was made really over. But I think when I first started to think about myself as an Asian Canadian, at least in a sort of like a formalized identity context was when I was eight. I remember being in a classroom and I don't remember what we were talking about that day, but the teacher was talking about categories of some shape or form. She said something to the degree of, um, and who identifies as white or, you know, who would be white or something around that. I can't even remember specifically what she asked, but I remember raising my hand and I literally thinking I was white. And part of why I thought I was white because that I identified being white as speaking English and a particular type of English, English that was not accented, so to speak, English that was white passing, I guess. That's what I identify mostly as, as what, what it meant to be white. And I remember raising my hand and the teacher said, no, put your hand down. Mm. And I remember putting my hand down and thinking, why am I putting my hand down? And what did I just do? And realizing that that was a moment where somehow my understanding of my identity wasn't what fit what was being reflected back to me in that moment. And it was the first time that I became aware of this idea of what white meant, what Asian meant, what anything ethnic racial meant, even though from a lived sense, there were a lot of times where my identity was something that overtly I was sort of having to grapple with, if that makes Mm. sense. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just the lack of socialization around our racial identity. And I'm just even feeling for this eight-year-old Lana, the teacher told you to put your hand down, like whatever it meant for you to raise your hand. No, you don't. That's not you. You You don't get to keep your hand raised. Well, and it was interesting that I don't remember having a conversation, like I don't remember going back and saying mom or dad or brother, or I mean, like anyone, like this is what happened today, let's talk about this, right? I don't think anyone knew, I, I don't even know if anyone knows <laughs> in my own family that, that was an experience. I think that was the first moment where I started to become aware of this idea of race yeah, and racial identity. And then learning about what my identity means, how you think has been an ongoing process. Mm. Um, And even today, I find myself as a person, as an educator, as a clinician of, you know, all these different things where identity and really what it means to be Asian is something I think about quite a bit. Yeah. Um, And I've encountered it in many different ways as in sort of a professional academic context. Mm -hmm. But I think the journey has been one where it's only until I come across those moments where I'm overtly made aware that I'm Asian, do I start to actively think about being Asian. In all honesty, I think what it means to be Asian is something I'm actually always thinking about. Yeah. It's only I'm much more aware of it now. Yeah. So how that was sort of your initial conscious awareness at age eight. How about over the years? How did you gain awareness? I know, I mean, 
I don't know if eight was all that long ago, but you know, in general. You know, I think part of my identity, my ethnic identity development has been shaped a lot by the media, Mm. right? So my own exploration about what it means to be Asian Canadian um, has happened in relationship to comparing who I am to what's projected in sort of these mass media formats, right? Like in these mass media contexts, if that makes sense. So seeing sort of these caricatures of Asian women and this particular typecast that seems to be what's published most Mm -hmm. um, and saying, well, like, that's not me. And I, and I don't like that version of what they're publishing. And, And that's a very single story and a very, um, pathologizing sort of caricature. And that's also a very monolithic caricature. I mean, I, I think that in part of sort of seeing what the media has portrayed about what a, an Asian person or an Asian American woman is, has really influenced my own thinking. And then as I've sort of moved through other social contexts, um, and move through my own professional development, and I've read texts, or I've talked to other, other Asian Americans, I've, I'm like doing this constant, I don't, I don't want to say editing, but it's almost like this back and forth between, and like, and how does this land for me? How does this fit with me? Is this me? Where do I fit in all of this? Am I like them? Am I not? And perhaps part of that might also be fed with awareness of just, um, migration history and more contemporary immigration patterns and recognizing that I'm once removed from direct migration because I'm born in Canada, but I'm aware uh, that how I understand my ethnic identity is different from somebody who would have been 1.5 generation or first generation or whatever it might be. Um, So I think when I interact with persons who represent a different migration status than myself, I also find myself thinking through, okay, what does it mean to be Asian Canadian? And that identity piece then is something I find myself um, exploring. Well, I really love what you said about media because I think about, you know, these days, how often are we engaging with media? I think it's all day, right? On our phones, through social media, whether it's news on Netflix or Hulu and what you describe as do I fit in not only like the non-Asian people I see, but the Asian people that are being depicted. Well, I don't feel like that represents me or those that I know. And I think there's a lot that's going on just under the surface of our minds as Asian North Americans that we're just not conscious of, right? But because we're always interacting with media, I think it is impacting us. And I'm wondering about what you think about our Asian North American slash Christian identity, just the fact that the way that we're socialized, all of that, we have blind spots around understanding racial identity. How do you think that impacts us? There's so much that can be said to that question. I think that there's so much that is edited out of our experience when we think about the media. So part of my experience, and I know that the experience of Asian American persons is really going to vary, um, but my experience has been that when I read 
whether it's academic literature or um, a non a piece of nonfiction, or when I watch a TV show or look at a movie, you know, that features anyone who is identified as like Asian American or just Asian. The experience for me has been that so much that is portrayed, like I just can't resonate with it. Mm-hmm. And then I start going through this piece of like, well, then I must not be Asian. <laughs> I think that was like an earlier version of me, right? And when I, I think thinking of myself as just Canadian was something that I did in like years past during, during high school, A, out of survival, because you're constantly resisting racism or trying to survive racism. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Yeah. And you're aware that there is something to performing your sense of belonging in like dominant culture right? That is important for one's survival. And so when I think about how have the blind spots impacted a person, I think the very limiting monoliths that have been constructed about what it means to be Asian American or who Asian Americans are has really stifled my own development of self. I think that it has been um, really oppressive. I think that part of what's been oppressive is that part of what's, what has felt oppressive is this uh, felt need to not reify what dominant culture says is Asian American, as well as this felt sense of needing permission to say, but Asian American can be this and that and that and that and the other. Does that make sense? Like it can be much more than what's portrayed and it is much more than what's portrayed, but it gets really exhausting Mm. to sort of be asking for permission and and trying to sort of tell the story that this is there is more to being Asian American than what is sort of seen. I, I before you said the word exhaustion, I was just feeling the exhaustion. Like, oh, that's so much energy and effort. Um, whether we're making it consciously or not, I think the the comparing, contrasting ourselves with what what's seen, and then. Um, trying to figure out our belongingness and then is it okay for me to clarify or to to object even to what is being portrayed and to correct whatever it is and I think probably a lot of people can resonate with what you're sharing myself included just the journey around that even whether or not we have language something I think about is on the news right I think a lot of people of color wonder this when there's a major attack of any kind or crime, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of Asians say, I hope they're not Asian, right? And what is that about? I mean, that's, those are, these are loaded conversations, but part of it is recognizing what dominant culture, white American society understands about myself individually or anyone who phenotypically looks like me is magnified by the stories of any one person that looks like me, you know? So I think we we carry that with us. And so I just appreciate you speaking to that. What you just said, um, I really really resonate with what you just said. Um, And it's interesting because I was just thinking about that as just today, I had an experience of another person who's Asian American who was talking about going to this event and there being this issue that happened, I think it was around um, seeing um, an Asian American mother get asked by some facilitator to like take their kid outside or something like that at this one like parenting event. And um, that person was saying that 
as a fellow Asian American person, she was like, oh man, like there's this one part to like wanting just, I don't know how to say, I guess just being hypervigilant anytime anyone who shares that racial identity is brought into the spotlight in a way. It's like, there's this holding of breath yes. that you can sort of feel because you, I think you use the word magnify anything that an Asian American person does or says or doesn't say or doesn't do that gets sort of placed into the media spotlight usually tends to be done in a way that doesn't add to sort of our legitimacy as, as yeah. just in society. And actually, I just, as we're talking about this, I realize it's because the racial identity piece matters because society sees us as a group, as a clump. We're not individuals in a sense, right? Because how often do we hear, oh, you know, you're a Taiwanese American. Oh, I love Thai food, you know, which they're thinking it's the same thing, <laughs> but but who I am individually is already immediately connected to a food group, their other Asian American friend or colleague or family member. And you know, not those are those are those are just what people will think, but then we're tapping into this larger racial reality that as individuals walking around in the world, we don't really get to be recognized as individuals, you know? And so I'm wondering as we talk about this, what does this mean for our well-being? You know, this season we're talking about mental health and relationship health. If we're living in North America with some of this racial burden mm -hmm. or not knowing it's there, but we're experiencing, what does that do to us? There's a layer of invisible work, I think, that we're always having to do. Yeah. That's not seen, that's not talked about, but that's very much felt. Yeah. I think there's a level of stress accompanied with that. And when I think about how that translates into mental health, I think there's a sense of anxiety, mm -hmm. right? Like when I think about anxiety disorders per se, like from the DSM and whatnot, it's hard for me as an Asian American person to think of anxiety as just a mental disorder or a mental illness or a mental health issue. For me, I always associate anxiety as being connected to a context that produces anxiety. Mm, yeah. There's a context of anxiety that's produced for Asian Americans because we're always existing in the space of forever foreigner and honorary white. And sort of this awareness that we are always clumped as one massive group where we're all the same and we're talking all the same and and we're not. And that can be really limiting. I think that can also lead to a lot of just the feeling of being like marginalized, right? Because we're never then seen as like a legitimate part of. I, I, I find myself going back to the example that you gave of, you know, when you introduce yourself and say, I'm Taiwanese American. And someone says, I love Thai food. There's something that's really interesting about the part of the Asian American experience, maybe not for all, but for, for some, and, and I can certainly relate to this, where you're wanting to be accepted as being a member of society, and you're also wanting to be able to feel rooted with a sense of your own heritage, whatever that looks like, and to whatever degree that looks like. Right? But when you're with others 
and someone immediately relates to you only through what they assume to be your ethnic identity. You realize, for me, like those are the moments where I think I experience the most sense of, of marginalization. Like yeah. that's when I really feel the most that I exist on this periphery, that the only way that you can think of me is to see me as an other. Yeah. And that even in your attempts to want to include me and relate to me, that you can only do so through this really racialized lens that you think I exist in. Yeah. That you think fits for me. And what you don't get is that it doesn't fit for me at all. Yeah. Yes. But it's not a really good way of answering, I think, what you... No, I think, okay, this, it's so great that you shared that. So on the outside, that kind of exchange, when you look at the intention of the other person, let's say from a Christian lens, oh, this other friend, they're being really nice. They're trying to connect with us. That is true, right? And at the same time, if we miss the, the racial undercurrents, and if listeners aren't yet familiar with the term microaggression, we would probably encourage you to just look it up and, and um, get more familiar with it. But some of those microaggressions, the you know, unintended behaviors or acts or words that are actually painful, like you said, it's marginalizing. And the word that came to my mind is like reductionistic, like mm-hmm. you're being reduced to something. On our conscious level, we may not think it's impacting us, but you think of the day-to-day toll of being marginalized and in and out of school or work, wherever we are. And it's this feeling of, well, these people don't really get me and I don't really belong here and I'm just going to keep trying whatever it is, that model minority stereotype, right? Try to fit in. I just think that does something to disconnect us from our, our physical health, our relationship health, things that I can't even really put into words yet, but I can just feel it in my body, the exha- exhaustion, like you mentioned, you know, all of that. Part of what we're talking about are acts of colonization. Hmm. Like, that as Asian Americans, we experience colonizing pressures to perform like the dominant discourse wants us to participate in right and they want to and and in a way it's like the dominant discourse also wants to sort of quote-unquote celebrate what they want to sort of value about Asian culture Mm -hmm. right whether it's like oh we're going to make sort of this an ethnic food like in vogue and a fat (laughs) okay whatever that is I, I just think that there's something that's really missed you're talking about the ways in which our marginalization impacts our relationships and our own relationship to ourselves and the way that we have to disconnect in order to really survive it and I think that all of these things are really really true one of the things I was thinking about was um gender specifically and gender socialization and how you know I I don't live this obviously directly because I identify as a cisgender woman but I wondered a lot about the what it means to be an, an Asian American man hmm. because I think in the dominant discourse you know um, the dominant discourse really tends to emasculate and sort of marginalize Asian men's experiences and and so like there's this monolith that's been created about what it means to be an Asian American man and when you juxtapose that with these traditional ideas of masculinity in the dominant discourse that are celebrated it's like the version of what Asian American men are perceived to be as men, it doesn't stack up. And so it's like, what then would a person who identifies as an, or is perceived even as an Asian American man have to do to then be seen as legitimate? I think about that and I think about those pressures. Like, I think that it would then 
in a way, engender a person to perform masculinity in like a very hyper-masculinized way, which wouldn't necessarily bode well for relational connection or the one's emotional connection to themselves as a a being, right? So I don't know, like those are some specific examples where I do think you are um, speaking truth to part of the Asian American experience, which is that part of survival requires us to disconnect from aspects of who we are. Mm. So this disintegrated way that we kind of exist in the world. Um, And at the same time, there's like this ambiguous sort of intangible loss component. Mm. We don't overtly talk about this, right? So it's like, you can't name it. If you can't name it, or if something isn't named, it's like this felt sense of something but you don't know how to yeah. understand it. Yeah, I just, um, if you get the chance in our first episode with Professor Guan and from Fuller Seminary, we talked about the psychosomatic symptoms mm-hmm. that Asian American clients tend to have, as well as when they come in presenting with, you know, everything's going well, but I just don't feel good. You know, and I don't know how to to call it, to name it, what is it? And I just think as we're talking about all this stuff today around race, gender, and context, our interaction consciously or not with this world around us and all those expectations related to our racial identity, the assumptions about our racial identity, there's a lot more going on under the surface. I mean, just so important for us to be open to looking into that, exploring it, if listeners wanted to gain more awareness about these issues, what encouragement or direction would you give them? I think it's really important to be able to connect, to have context. I think it's important to have relationships where we can more vulnerably speak to the many aspects of what it means to be biculturally Asian American. I'm saying bicultural because I think that part of the Asian American experience for many of us is existing in between spaces. And I I don't see that as a problem. I actually really celebrate that as a strength because I think it gives you the ability to be able to see multiple worlds at once. Yeah. Know that navigating multiple worlds at once isn't an easy feat. There's a resilience to that. There's wisdom to that. And I think it's important to be in relationship with folks who can really reflect that back as a strength and who can really celebrate that. I'm saying that sort of more from a firsthand perspective, that I know what it has looked like for me to try to navigate my world as an Asian American and not want to talk about what that means Mm. and how much fuller my life feels when I have those relationships available to me where that gets to be a part of it, right? So I think part of that means that we are actively seeking out communities both within group and outside of our own groups right whatever one identifies to be the group and I think there is a real place for one to sort of explore this in like a therapeutic sense it's really valuable to be able to have therapeutic relationship to seek out therapy that can really help you from a strength-based valuation sort of perspective that can help you really lean into what your ethnic identity means and what it and and the challenges of what it means to exist in a white dominated society as an Asian American person and be able to help you sort of sift through some of the things that may not be in your conscious dialogues 
Yeah. Um, I think that that's really important. I might also say as a parent, I think that it's really important for me as a parent to actively stay engaged in exploring what it means for me to be an Asian American parent. Mm. What does that mean in terms of what I transmit in my relationship to my daughter mm-hmm. um, with my partner? Those are, th- are things that I think are really important um, that actually help me to stay well. And I know that those are many different things. Lana, I love what you shared and there's so much for us and our listeners to think about, but I wanted to thank you for your time today. And um, always such a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This episode was edited by Alexander Cathedral and produced by Jason Chu with music by Mark Redito. We'll see you next time and hope that you remember God loves all of you.